in part two of our deep dive into film composition with Gunnar DeBose, we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about what do you do when you graduate? What do you do when you're trying to get work? Things like starting a reel, things like working with the music libraries and, and working toward your business. And Gunnar's got some great tips on how to think about your audio presentation and, and what you're going to send out to people. But before you do anything, please hit subscribe in whatever device you're listening to. And here's Gunnar DeBose and Bradley Hughes. The way I approach a demo reel is, um, is like a movie. It has to play like a movie, a little movie, a short movie, a short film that has to be compelling. So I always tell students to pace the reel accordingly, uh, letting them know that essentially the first five seconds of each clip is what you have to grab somebody. After that, minds start to wander. So there's the ingredients in the demo reel and then how the demo reel is actually put together. And the way that I uh, advise students with demo reels is to start a demo reel out with uh, just like a movie, just like a, like a trailer, a preview, an advertisement, something short, built to longer form, and then break it back down again. So there's got to be like a zenith to the reel, a crescendo, to where you have a longer form thing in the middle, maybe two minutes, and then you taper off at the end. So maybe you shift the moods between each section. So instead of having drama, 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 you have maybe animation, drama, action, short film, thriller, mm. horror, and then end on like maybe, a, a, maybe your strongest point as a writer because that's what people are going to remember. They're going to remember the first clip that you put on there and they're going to remember the last clip. And if the writing is really compelling and this film is really compelling, they'll remember that too. Uh, so there's... There's that. There's the, they're the sort of the, the meat of the reel, which is the, the clips that we have. Another element that's often overlooked in the demo reel are the transitional sections. So those are the title cards that introduce each section. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you start off with a trailer. And you have a title card that says trailer music, and then you trailer, and then you have another title card that introduces drama. So there's the title card that falls drama. In each one of those transitional sections, you need to have really great music in each one of those transitional sections. Even if it's only two or three seconds long, you need to have a needle drop of score. And often what will happen when people are watching your demo reel is they'll hear the transitional score and they'll say, that's amazing, what's that? Mm -hmm. And that'll actually be more of an incentive for them than sometimes the clip would be. And so using the psychology of the reel is, is as important as, as, as picking things, how you, sequ how you sequence things. Um, most students tend to have a niche that they write really well in. So, uh, and it's more of a niche, not so much of um, film style, but of musical style. So, you know, I've got students who write really great electronic music, and orchestral music still isn't their game yet. So maybe it's game trailers, and then maybe a thriller that's got more of a... Uh, Hans Zimmer type of electronically sequenced score or maybe something Trent Reznor, something mm -hmm. like that. And then um, if I have students who just do animation or they just like to write big and epic stuff, then it's movies from those genres with very orchestral scores and they're writing to their strengths. So within the reel, there's the sort of the subgenres and how do we create 
clips that uh, are appropriately paced, but also highlight our skills as writers. So maybe if you're not an epic, if you're not an epic composer, it may not make sense to put an epic action born ultimatum clip in there. Right. If you're in the animation world. Right. So there has to be that. But then, of course, you could pace it. You could have you know four different types of animation clips that encompass four different styles of of animation. So I I always tell students that the pacing is as important as the actual content. So there's a it's it's a very difficult balance to find. But if you can sit through it and it feels like a, a short movie that's giving you an experience, then you've succeeded and you've created emotional peaks and valleys for people and they stay engaged. I think that's great advice because, you know, if you pay attention to the transitional music on the title cards uh, being the connective tissue mm -hmm. so that the demo reel from front to back in, the, in full length and we're talking, you know, five or seven minutes here yes. for the entire thing, right? Yes. Uh, that... Again, it's about, uh, I like what you said about creating the emotional peaks and valleys for the viewer, yeah. even though it's only this short, five or seven minutes, that it's an experience for them. And the production value is there, and um, that's why we also tell students to pay attention to technical things like aspect ratios of film of clips course, and yeah. Yeah, all that jazz. You gotta, all that stuff has to be cleaned up because it really needs to be as professional and polished, not right. only in the soundtrack and, the, and your work, but the visual content as well. Yeah, I remember when we first had a conversation about demo reels four years ago, and you said, and I said, listen, I want the students to try cutting their own reels in Final Cut Pro or Adobe Premiere. And there was hesitancy around that because we're not teaching video editing in our right. department. But all the students were like, sure, I'll, I'll edit it. I'll put it together. And um, there's, a, there's two sides to that. A, they learn a little bit more about how to work with movies when they're actually having to cut movies together. And that makes them better composers and sound designers. Um, B, it, it, it allows them to discern what their best work is and to control that process and to be able to understand a little bit about what makes a good movie. Because if you can make a good demo reel, then that's a way to discern what a good movie is. You know, you know, you know your, if your demo reel is good or not. You know, uh, so I think it's evolved into, it's into a little monster right now where everybody's cutting everything in Adobe Premiere and we're talking as much about aspect ratios and all of that stuff as we yeah. are about the actual content itself. So it's, it's morphed into a very interesting dimension, which I think is really good because they're understanding more about film and process, which is what they have to know to be good at sound design and scoring. Agreed. And also, I think our students benefit from some exposure to understanding what picture editors do. Oh, yeah. Because in the industry, of course, that's one of the people that you'll be working with most closely oh, yeah. and have a relationship with is the picture editor. So, you know, I, I'm a big fan of uh, picture editors understanding sound design and understanding music and how it's put together. And I'm a big fan of composers and sound designers understanding picture editing. So that's great. Yeah, uh, speaking to, about picture editors really quickly, I, uh, my first movie, uh, I sat in the edit bay with the editor, and I saw him edit the movie, and I saw him edit the score, and I was like, this is fascinating. This is how movies are done. Yeah. And the director wasn't there. It was just me and the editor, and we sat there for a year, and we worked out the movie. Yeah, we worked out the movie. And he would ask me questions like, what do you think of this scene? And I, you know, and I was like, I'm just the composer. What do I know? But it was actually a valuable lesson for me to to learn about pacing and how important that is 
if you're a composer, you know, if a film, if you're looking at films to score and you're starting out and you get a film and it's badly paced, it's not going to get into festivals. It's not going to leave the edit bay. But if you if you know what to look for in a movie and you understand a little bit about pacing, then it's a good bet that that independent film that may not have a big budget um, might be something you want to really score. And that will take you to the next level. You have some of your music available for purchase in music libraries. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, in the service of informing students about available opportunities for generating income from their music, um, uh, of, of course, the topics that we covered regarding website and LinkedIn and networking, those are all very important. But let's talk about music libraries and music licensing for a sure. minute. Tell me a little bit about um, your take on that and how can someone new who has a new portfolio of work, how can they go about getting their work in a library for licensing? Well, my first uh, music credit came from a library deal that I did, and that was in 2000 when it was a lot harder to get your music in libraries. Mm. But again, that's when uh, music libraries started advertising online for music. Mm-hmm. Music, We're looking for music in this genre. If you have music, send it to us. And if it meets our quality standard, whatever that is, uh, we'll place it in a show and you'll get a back-end royalty through either BMI or ASCAP. And so on a lark, I burned a CD, I sent it to a music library, and 30 credits later, I have 30 credits just from those six tracks that, that are still being used 15 years later, believe it or not. Yeah, it's amazing. And they're still generating income for me. The content is the driver of uh, your brand. It's that simple. And um, I know that sounds really corporate and everything else, but and it is, but if you don't have any content, you're not going to be able to do the library route. So you spend a lot of time, you write a lot of music, you figure out how much of that music is, is good, and you do that by having a lot of people listen to it if you don't know and they tell you ask them for their honest feedback and they say hey these 20 tracks of the 30 you've just done are really great you then go online you do a music library search and the music libraries come up very readily um, and they almost all have a submissions email in them and you can write the person who runs that part of the library and you can say listen I'm interested in submitting work and um, they will often say what's your SoundCloud page so again we go back to the whole social media uh, you know SoundCloud profile thing that you have to have really well organized Uh, if they like what they hear they'll say this is our deal we you bring the music to us um, and when it gets licensed out we take a portion of the publishing Usually as back-end income for them, we do what are, what's called a retitlement, where they change the title so they can use that music publishing for revenue for themselves. And then you get music placed in shows. And depending on the show and depending on how they use the library, you can actually derive an additional music credit out of it, not just a stock music credit. But the libraries, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but, ju- but just to clarify a couple sure. of points, the libraries are doing the legwork of shopping the music for the various shows, if, or whatever. Correct, yeah. So if it gets in, you know, it would, passively, you would uh, get some income yeah. from that. Yeah, yeah. And the second point is, you mentioned contacting these libraries. I want to mm-hmm. confirm these libraries are, um, they accept unsolicited material. A lot of them do, actually. Okay, you don't have to have an agent. No, or you don't have to have an agent or anybody. Okay. And that's what's great about them. Uh, you know, the, the industry has really opened up a lot 
there's two sides of that, though. So there's the revenue side on the front end has fallen for music library work. Right. But the number of shows, the number of outlet channels has right. just exploded. So the need for music is huge. Um, so a lot of uh, cable television networks go directly to libraries for what they need musically. So it's a viable path for new composers oh, yeah. to say, hey, this is the modern landscape. Sure. You, you really have to pursue this path. Yeah, in fact, uh, Hans Zimmer, I believe, opened a, a music library just for this purpose, mm. for people who couldn't afford custom score, who want high quality score. He's in the library business now, I believe. And so it's everybody's in it. Um, and it is a viable uh, way to make money. I mean, I have 432 pieces of music on television. Wow. 441 pieces of music right now. And that's all through most, that's a, three quarters of that is through library work. And a quarter of that's film stuff. But the rest of it's, you know, mostly library work. That speaks to a lot. Can you give us an example, just, just one or two names of the music library companies that you've worked with? Sure. So people know where to start. Um, Scorekeepers Music is one. Scorekeepers Music. Yeah, Scorekeepers Music. That was my first one. And then I work with uh, a, a custom library called Silver Lake Sounds that um, was started with uh, uh, by a friend of mine. And it's a little bit more uh, smaller. It's a little bit more specialized. And everybody knows everybody. In the library, so it's essentially my 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 colleague does all the legwork, and we do all the writing. Right. And it's a little bit we know what's going on. So that's another that's another unintended consequence of having a lot of music out there. Sometimes they're not good at accurately reporting what music's being used, and you can actually lose revenue because of bad reporting in libraries. So you have to be on top of things. That leads me to an important follow-up that I, uh, I will ask on behalf of students who might be watching this, and that is, should I, you know, once I have my package of my library of stuff ready to go, um, should I register it with a PRO like ASCAP or BMI, and should I copyright it with the U.S. government copyright office? The most important thing is to register it with your PRO right away. Uh, and and um I mean, the first thing I do whenever I write a new piece of music and it's done, I, I register it with my PRO. And that's a very easy process. As a BMI writer, you just go online, new work, you register the new work, and it's complete. An important question I get from students all the time is, you can register, once you set up your account mm -hmm. with a, a performing rights organization like BMI or ASCAP, uh, and you, can, you have to create a name of your publishing company. You do, right? You do. That's one step. But then you can do that registration with the PRO without registering at yes. the copyright. In, yes, you don't have to register. Yeah. In fact, um, do that first because the copyright office can routinely take six months to yes. process something, and you don't you don't necessarily need to do. It's more of a music business lawyer question. You don't necessarily need to go through the copyright office, but it's a way of ensuring complete protection for your copyright. Again, just on a negotiating business side of things, I know that many uh, new composers to the industry, and I'd like to get your take on this, uh, many new composers who get their first film are offered a package deal mm -hmm. um, where they act as composer and music producer and they're expected to deliver the final music right. tracks in full right. uh, with all that goes into that. 
Do you have any uh, negotiating tips for composers who are offered package deals in terms of points on the back end or anything like that? Well, let's talk about I have points on my first film, and I have yet to see a penny. So uh, I've never heard of a composer getting points. I mean, I've heard of them getting points. I've actually never heard of anybody I know getting any money from those points. Okay. And that's very endemic to the film industry. And there's, that's a whole other discussion. There's a whole, lot, there's a whole lot of reasons why that happens. Um, insofar as negotiating, the, the primary consideration is the more money they pay you up front, the more ownership of the music they're going to want to have if, they're, if they know what they're doing. If they don't pay you a lot of money up front, then you should always insist on owning the copyrights of the music and then essentially relicensing the score to them for use in their movie. And what this gives you is it gives you the power of using the music for something else. It also gives you the, all of the revenue that you would be entitled to vis-a-vis -a, -vis a PRO when they pay you out you're publishing, you'd get all of that as well as all the writing. Um, so my negotiating tactic is really quite simple. Uh, if you're starting out, they're not paying you a lot of money, then you, have to, you should insist on owning everything. Um, if they're paying you quite a bit of money, then you're not going to own everything. That's just how it works. So um, it's, that's, it's, it's simple. We can, talk, we can talk a lot about that, but um, the important thing to realize is that you may not have a whole lot of clout when you do your first deals, but you can own all of your work. And the reason why that's important is my first movie, I own most of the publishing for it. And as a result, although I didn't make a whole lot of money on my first movie on, as a front-end fee, right. I've been collecting royalties for the last 10 years, very regularly, 11 every year. This uh, is from... September uh, performance tapes. royalties from playback on HBO or uh, Showtime or Showtime, whatever it is. Uh, international television, yeah. uh, Brazilian uh, TVs paid me quite a bit. Um, and that's another thing, you know, the, the royalty stream comes from all over the world. And it can take up to nine years for you to see everything. So it's a, it's a time game as well. Uh, and that's difficult to teach somebody who's 23 years old that oh, it's probably going to take five years before you actually start seeing a lot of revenue from your royalty catalog, and they frown. But um, five years, as we know, goes by pretty fast. Sure. So, yeah. Sure. Well, that's a good negotiating tactic, just if you can, you know, probably not going to be a lot of money up front, depending on the sure. budget of, of the production company and what the project is. But the upside is you can negotiate to retain ownership, Right. Of your music, which then allows you to further license it uh, for other things beyond that one project. And the inverse of that is I just did it on a film where I offered the producer part of the publishing to pay me more money up front. So he was like, oh, can I do that? I'm like, sure you can. Yeah. You pay me more money, I can offer you ownership. And he said, okay. So there's two ways you can work that depending on how savvy you are. There are so many tools out there now that are available to anyone for the purposes of self-promotion, no matter what your business is, but certainly for, um, for music and sound. What resources do you think are most valuable for new graduates who are about to break into this business? I mean, social media, website presence, networking tools. What do you think is the most valuable? All, of the, all of the above. There's, there's um, the networks you make at school is one. Uh, so 
finding the talent in the school on the visual side. And at AAU, they have such a luxury because it's a film school, so they can find filmmakers here. And I didn't have that luxury when I was in school. Yeah. Um, so that's huge. Uh, one. Uh, two is understanding how to get your work in front of people, how to get your music in front of people. And so using IMDb, using LinkedIn.com, and using Twitter to connect with people very informally has been very effective. Uh, understanding SoundCloud, which is, which is our social media platform as yeah. composers, and learning how to use that tool as an embed to a website, as a way to send music to clients, as a way to promote yourself, uh, to uh, releasing your music on iTunes, which is also very easy to do. Uh, releasing a, a, an album of your music or a collection of your songs now. They're not really records anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's that component too, but it's a, a multi-pronged uh, uh, um, mission that you have to go on. You have to send all of your armies out in many directions in order to get to where you need to go. And uh, so I always tell people, you know, if you're watching a film on Netflix and you like the, you like the film, pause when you get to the end credit, find the editor, go on LinkedIn.com and try to connect with that person. Go to IMDB.com, find out what they've done, uh, find their website and communicate with them. And the interesting thing about that is you'll find that a lot of people in the industry will reach out to you. People have worked on really big movies. If you, if you know what you're, if you know who you're targeting. So if you, you know, Steven Spielberg might not reach out to you, but maybe an assistant editor who worked on one of those movies yeah. would reach out to you. Uh, and maybe they're an assistant editor working on a couple of independent films and they need a composer for those films or a sound designer. So those are ways to bridge the gap between how do I network and how do I get a job? And there need, it, it's very, it has to be very regular and consistent and strategic in terms of how you do it. Uh, but it's easier now to network than it's ever been because of LinkedIn, because of IMDB, because of Twitter, because of Facebook. I mean, you can reach out to people in ways that you could have never reached out to people um, when I started. You know, when I started it was making the CD yeah. and send it in the mail. Yeah. And then what's going to happen in a month? Right. You know, is it going to go into a big pile of CDs somewhere? Right. And now it's as simple as, hey, do you have any links on SoundCloud? Uh, and you put together a playlist and you send it away. And then they're like, great. And then you, um, and then you get the job and then it's all done and then you're working. Yeah. Um, it's very strange. It's quick now. These are these are great uh, tips. I think. Uh, it, let, let me just loop back to SoundCloud for a second sure. and website because, yeah. as you said, I agree. SoundCloud is kind of our you know social media platform for music people. Uh, do you think it's enough to have a SoundCloud page, or do you think it's also a must that you really need to go ahead and build a website and and link your SoundCloud to the website? Okay, so let's talk about let's talk about demographics. Okay, uh, so. If you're a millennial, it's, uh, why do I need a website? I have SoundCloud and Facebook. But if you're somebody who's 45 years old, I want to see a website. So you have to have all of it. You have to have a website because um, depending on who you are and how digitally native you either are or you're not, um, 
you need to have a website. You need to have a website that's mobile enabled. You need to have your SoundCloud page embedded into that website, along with any other work that you may have done, like your demo reel, has to be on YouTube, and then it has to be embedded into the website. The difference between, again, now and 15 years ago, 15 years ago, you needed to hire a web developer to do all this stuff. And now you can get a Wix account for eight bucks a month and do it all yourself, and it's instant promotion. And there are many, many, many people in the industry who are complete do-it-yourselfers, who are very, very successful, um, who don't have a team of web developers working for them. They just, you know, do it. So, Yeah, I agree. I, I tell my students this all the time, and I think you probably share with yours as well, that when you create a website, and I, you know, I tell this story about being in a band 25 years ago or something, <laughs> right. and, you know, it was going to cost $25,000 for us to hire somebody to build this yeah. thing for us. Uh, now, as you say, you know, it's, it's, it's so very much accessible. Choose a beautiful template, upload your materials, boom. The thing goes live. You are instantly your own global company. Totally. I mean, I mean uh, iTunes, CD Baby, the track goes up to iTunes in three hours. It's released that quickly. Um, it's such a strange world in how quickly we can get above the radar. And, um, but you also have to remember that you have to put your best work above the radar. Yes. So that's gotta be another component to the conversation. Um, do I have enough work that's good enough to put online for the public to see? Because when you put something out there, it's out there that's forever. Right. And, that's right. And you, you um, uh, you know, you have to be very careful about how you organize SoundCloud. You have to be very careful about, you know, what clips you're putting online. You have to be very careful about what you say on Twitter, even, um, because all of that stuff stays in the digital ether forever. I, I agree, and it comes back to craft, right? Of course, yeah. We talk about craft, we talk about discernment, talk about choosing your best work. Yeah. You know, hopefully our students have developed a body of work over the time they've been here yeah. at AAU, that doesn't mean that you should just upload every final right. class project because it turned out okay. You really do have to discern and, and, and make into you know a, a, a reel and then let that be your calling card. Of course. One of the things I like to do is uh, in class, we'll go to a SoundCloud page of a student who's uploaded material. Yeah. And I'll ask the class, what do we think? What do you guys think? And uh, the results are interesting in terms of what people say. But it's important to know that the kind of scrutiny that they're going to be getting when they leave here, and while they're here even, they'll get incredibly accurate feedback about stuff that's not working. And they'll get it right away. Uh, and that, that's where the discernment comes in. Like, is this worth putting up? You know, and I, and I think that's something that I always tell them, like, do you really want to put this up or do you want to keep working on it or do you just want to forget about it? Before we wrap up this episode, Brad and Gunnard have a last piece of advice about how to know if you're doing something good, how to know if your music is headed in the direction you want it to be. If you hear something that you haven't done that sounds great, do that thing. Figure out how to do that thing. It could be sound design too. If you've never done sound design for a big sci-fi movie, then just do it. Find a scene somewhere. There's a lot of great visual media stuff available on the internet. And, and do a version of that and put that in your reel. 
if you're a writer, uh, I'm always, and, and what's great about teaching is sometimes the students will bring in stuff that I haven't written before. And so I'll go home and write something like just like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and because it's just so important to keep pushing yourself. It just never stops. It never stops. And um, you have to keep learning. School's the beginning of this whole process. Uh, you know, you, you get out there and you realize that, well, there's no picture lock. It's always changing. Yeah, and we teach emulation a lot in our sure. classes here. And, and I, I love uh, ending on this thought because it's, you know, it's about being curious. Yeah. Be curious. And, and you know, as a musician, certainly as a composer, we're in charge of identifying what are the signature components of this particular style that creates this kind of emotion, of right? Course, yeah. For, that's our job is to translate that for the production people and for directors. I had a student ask me last week, how do I know if it's good? And I said, does it sound like that? That's good. And, you know, it is emulation. It is figuring out how to make something sound great based on something that already sounds great. And taking those elements from whatever that is, compositionally or production-wise or emotionally, and putting them into your music. And that can just, that's what you need to do. Um, yeah. And uh, I do that every day. I do that. I still write. I write five days a week if I can. Even when I'm traveling, I travel a lot. I bring my little MIDI keyboard with me and my Mac, and I sit in my hotel room, and I'm just messing around all the time. Uh, just it never stops. Well, that wraps up our two-episode series with Gunnar Debozy as we talk about film score, sound design, and the business of making music. Before you head out, please do me a favor and hit subscribe again on whatever device you're listening to so you never miss an episode of Creative Mind. 